Hello. Over the next 30 minutes, I'll be taking a look back over an exceptional career, the career of a great friend and colleague of mine here at Manx Radio, David Collister, who died earlier this year, aged 84. Well, the time is just coming up to 11 o'clock. This is Manx Radio broadcasting on 219 metres in the medium wave band 89 and 96 megahertz VHF from the Isle of Man. It's time now for the family phone-in. And I would have a piece of music. That voice will be so familiar to the thousands of people who knew and loved David's broadcasting on Manx Radio for well over 50 years. He started life a long way from the modern technology that he eventually became so adept at using. And the details of his early years in a little cottage up Balafria Lane were something of a revelation when I heard him being interviewed by Geraldine Jameson some years ago. The first ten years of my life I lived in a, in a farm cottage. It was a two-up, two-down. It housed, I think, six people, including me at the time. Uh, my maternal grandmother was blind and she occupied one of the downstairs rooms. She was in bed, kept in bed. Um, but she did have the only radio in the house, which was supplied by Randall's, Randall's the battery company, because they, yes. they, yeah. they used to come around week by week with, uh, with the top yes. of your nuclear yeah. battery and so on. I could only hear this radio from the other room. I never got close enough to it because I, I wasn't supposed to, as a kid, go into grandmother's room, you see. And it was a house without electricity. It was a house without running water in the house. In fact, we drew the water from what was called laughingly a well, which was nothing much more than a cattle trough at the side of the road. <laughs> and I'm, I think the quality of the water might have been suspect. Whether it was all uh, boiled before use, I have no idea. <laughs> but I would go to bed with a, a candlestick and a candle to light me up the stairs. Yes. During his time doing national service with the Royal Engineers in the 1950s, David nearly got a job working for the British Forces Network Radio in Germany. But circumstances brought him back here to the Isle of Man and eventually to a job in Braddon at Rural Industries. But radio was always his real love. And, as luck would have it, in 1964, the Isle of Man started its very own radio station, the first commercial station in the British Isles. Oh, yes, sir. Hallelujah. And how would you do out there? And how you doing, everybody, in the Isle of Man? Because this is it. This is the big day we've all been waiting for, every one of us including me right here in the studio, let me tell you, and before I go any further, I'm going to introduce myself. I've been dying to do so for the last two weeks, and the name is John Grierson. How do you do? Well, it didn't sound that much like a Manx radio station when it first started. The mid-Atlantic accent was all the vogue on pop stations in those days. But it was the station's first broadcaster, John Grierson, that offered David a job. When John Grierson arrived with his caravan in Onken, I think on the second day he was there, I went to see him and said, I'd like a job as an announcer, please. And uh, he said, well, yes. I, I, you know, he sort of tested my voice and had a chat. He said, well, you sound all right. He said, um, uh, I think we can give you a, a shot. He said, however, I can't tell you whether this job will last for 12 months, one month or a week. <laughs> with, on that basis, with I think two children at the time, no, it, it wasn't a starter for me then. <laughs> but, but yes, my interest goes back 
to that and it goes back to my childhood days as well where I grew up with my ear close to an old echo radio when I was a youngster and, well, and, and listened to radio programs really all, all through my life as well. Despite not taking the offer of a full-time job from John Grierson in 1964, it wasn't long before he was making an appearance on the station. The very first time I appeared, uh, not live, but uh, recorded, was in 1965, uh, when Louise Quirk was doing a programme called uh, Personal Choice, I think, Personal mm-hmm. Choice, and you, you, ch- you chose your favourite songs and she interviewed you and so on. That was, yeah, 65, but it was a lot later before I started doing regular programmes after that. Eventually, he became a regular contributor to Manx Radio, presenting the folk music programme and the country music show. David and I both had pretensions to be musicians, and when we were guests on the afternoon show with Christy Dehaven a few years ago, she made us face up to some of our early recordings. David had had a massive hit 40 years before with a song he wrote and recorded called The T.T. Hall of Fame. You can hear the mighty engines as they run their race to fame From the pioneers of yesteryear to the heroes of today They're the men who made the records, they're the champions of the game And their names will live forever in the T.T. Hall of Fame yeah, it's enough of that, thank you. Um, <laughs> Does that sound familiar to it, you? It, well, that was in the 70s, and uh, I'd, what was it, it resulted from being uh, an entertainer at one of the T.T. Marshall's dinners, where I used to go along and sing songs and so on. And I thought, well, T.T. Marshall's worth writing a song about the T.T. So I sat down and wrote that song. In order to get some help about the riders and, and, and some information, I rang Ian Cannell, the late Ian Cannell, and he gave me all these names of riders. I knew nothing about the TT. <laughs> so I put it all together, and if, if you write a good song made up of lists, you're, you're safe. So that's where it was. Um, uh, then I said to Peter Neal at the time, and this was before I was regularly broadcasting, uh, could I record it? Uh, under the Manx Radio uh, name, you see. Oh, yeah, that'll be all right, he said. So Charlie Webster and I were in a studio, I don't know whether this floor or the other floor below now, the studios have all changed so much, uh, and I was banging away on the old guitar, Charlie was recording it, and it went out, it, I, got, I had to pay for the personal copies that were released of it, and it sold, I don't know, some thousands anyway, and it was uh, very popular. It was actually through music that David and I first met, as he recalled. That's interesting because the first time we ever met mm. was in a freezing cold <laughs> church in Douglas somewhere. Yes, Lock, Lock Parade Charlie church, Webster yeah. was the producer of this thing. He was recording your harp playing. Mm. I was to interview you, yes. and it was too cold it, to play because the harp strings were... Going out of tune. Absolutely, it was <laughs> freezing. In November 1977, I got my first full-time job, and it was here at Manx Radio, and turned out to be the very same month that David was offered an administrative job at the station. I came in as the assistant general manager to Peter Neal. They were easing Peter out of the place at the time, mm. and uh, after three months of the rising bills that were occurring, um, I thought, hello, 
I'm I'm in for the hit here. Oh no! So I retired, uh, resigned in three months, and went just back to programming. Indeed, things got very out of hand for Manx Radio in the late seventies, and David was very wise to go back to rural industries and not take the blame for spiralling costs. However, I was still here in 1982 when we started an innovative programme called Mandate, Manx Current Affairs, with myself, Louise Quirk and Jeff Cannell. It was very successful, but after the first year, Jeff decided he wasn't being rewarded enough, so he left to work for the Tourist Board. And that's when David was asked to join Manx Radio full-time as a broadcaster. Good morning, it's 11 minutes past 8 and this is Mandate presented by David Collister and Charles Gard and brought to you by the Cable and Wireless Group. In today's programme we hear from the Chairman of the Special Services Committee of the Board of Education who recommended the closure of the Rural Library. An MHK on that Board's Finance Committee tells us about his concern over the amalgamation of two schools at Paul Rose and we talk with the Chairman of the Manx Country Schools Association who's been fighting the school's closures. We'll be finding out how the Christmas mails are being handled and about a new stamp collection. Every weekday morning for seven years, David and I brought all the latest news and interviews to the Manx public. It was an agenda-setting programme, listened to by all the politicians, and David set a very high standard of professionalism that I'm happy to admit I learnt a great deal from. Everybody felt comfortable being interviewed by him, though they knew, however polite he might be, that the questions that needed to be asked would be asked. We covered a huge range of subjects, conducting well over a thousand interviews a year. Some of you might remember Graham Ferguson Lacey, a larger-than-life character on the Manx stage for quite a few years. He owned Bishop's Court, the nunnery, and when he was chairman of the Sefton Group, he bought the Castle Mona, and at one time he owned Russian Abbey, which, like the nunnery, he eventually sold to the government. A Tinwell Select Committee had been set up to examine the issues behind the proposed sale, and it was David's job one morning to interview Mr Lacey. Good morning again from me, David Callister. The final report of the Select Committee of Tinwald on Russian Abbey was published yesterday. The Select Committee, consisting of Sir Miles Walker, the Speaker of the House of Keys, Noel Kringle, and Walter Gilby, MHK. The report tells us that Graham Ferguson Lacey has been purchasing Russian Abbey over a period of uh, phased purchases, but it also tells us that Mr Lacey is prepared to sell the Russian Abbey site to government for a little over a million pounds, subject to certain conditions. Now, you will recall that during last year, Mr Lacey came forward with an ambitious project to develop the site, which later was amended to something rather different, which would have given us a a monastic garden, planting in the garden area, the re-establishment of a vinery, some buildings or a low wall to indicate where the previous abbey was, and the Academy nightclub would come down to be replaced with a single-storey structure. And there would be exhibitions and a shop and a restaurant, and we were promised that there might be strawberries and cream once again at Russian Abbey. Well, Mr Lacey joins me on the telephone now. Morning, uh, Mr Lacey. Good morning, David. Well, now, the uh, latest thing that we have in this report, and this, again, is, is something quite new, is a letter which you sent in on the 20th of January, which is briefly quoted here, um, and presumably this letter and some conversations are, have, have led to the latest development where you're offering Russian Abbey to government. That's right. 
Well, what did you have to say in the letter? Uh, well, perhaps it would be helpful uh, to put it in its context if I, uh, with your agreement, read the entire letter, David. Well, certainly, yes. I wrote to Sir Miles Walker on the 20th of January as follows. I have been reflecting further... <laughs> like so many of these people, they promise the earth and eventually deliver nothing. Of course, everyone was concerned about what might be going to happen to Russian Abbey, and there were those who doubted the intentions of Mr Lacey, and indeed couldn't fathom what he was up to. On such occasions, we were in the privileged position of being able to question these people and hold them to account live on air, something even the politicians couldn't do. Right. Well, Mr Lacey, uh, you, first of all, you come for this, the big scheme. You then uh, have this exercise where the public are asked to comment. A little bit later on, you have a revised scheme, which apparently took a lot of people by surprise, as it seemed to be only revealed to the select committee at a public sitting. Uh, you said you didn't want to sell. Now you say you do want to sell. You seem to be moving a, moving a goalpost pretty often. Uh, and, uh, in fact, with the greatest respect, David, that's quite incorrect. First of all, we announced um, very publicly that we would hold an exhibition. The mandate uh, interviewer had to be well informed and not only to have read the entire Select Committee report, but also to have had his ear to the ground to pick up on the rumours. It, it might be thought, though, that, I mean, originally uh, you were going to have uh, Life Shield Trust, basically, to finance it, and then a little bit later on you ca came along uh, offering government a shareholding of uh, very nearly half of, the, half of uh, what would be involved in in, in the financial backing needed. I mean, people could be excused for believing, perhaps, that you're, you're really looking for a financial backer in some way. No, well, that, again, uh, um, uh, is a totally incorrect assumption, because... The really? Well, who could keep up with what he was up to? And if he wanted to sell it, how much did he actually want? Well, the situation now is that, uh, that you're looking for something uh, a little over a million pounds. No, I'm not looking for anything, David. You, with respect, well, you're, well you're, that's what the report tells us. No, the report says that if, in fact, the government wished to purchase it, I am prepared to sell it at my cost. At a little over a million pounds. In the end, of course, the government did buy it. Mr Lacey, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you, David. It just seemed in those days that there were a lot more characters around than there are nowadays. Ferguson Lacey was certainly one, and another one whom David interviewed many times was Albert Goubet. During the 80s, Albert was busy developing the Clinch's brewery site on the North Quay in Douglas. But he also had his eye on Douglas Harbour and was very keen to build a marina there. He, at least, had the vision. Like many wealthy entrepreneurs on the island, he was constantly making the threat that he was going to leave. That might have been a relief to some in government in Albert's case, as he was constantly at war with them about all sorts of things, including work permits. And in this interview, David cautiously asked him about his plans. As far as you are concerned yourself, you, you told us, I think, in the past that you were, you were off to uh, Switzerland after, after this project. You perhaps were rethinking that, I, I suspect. Well, and, and there are rumours that you've now perhaps taken up the interest, the possibility of, um, of getting your mind round a marina in Douglas. Well, I have been approached and I have been asked to carry out that marina, and if the, if the terms and conditions are right, I would do that. But that doesn't mean to say that I shall remain on the Isle of Man permanently. I've still got an open mind as to 
whether I whether I go or not. But I must say, it as each day goes by, with the thought and the imagination I put into this place, it might be difficult to leave. And of course, the reaction now from government has completely changed to what it was a couple of years ago. Well, Albert did eventually leave the island. He's now in heaven, one assumes, given the large amount of money he left to the church. But in that interview, you heard him tell David how the reaction to him from government had completely changed in the last couple of years. This was surely a reference to the previous Minister for Ports, Arnold Callan. Mr Callan and Mr Goubet did not get on. In fact, Arnold would say to us, I'm not speaking to that man. Again, you see, the mandate presenter was in a very privileged position. We could talk to Arnold, and then we could go and talk to Albert, even if they weren't talking to each other. Their relationship had broken down catastrophically after a trip to Ireland, which Albert organised so that the minister could see a marina that Albert was building there. When they got back, Albert rang the man in line, as David recalled. When they came back, Albert Goubet rang the man in line and said that he'd just been away with uh, the minister and uh, Mr... Uh, they, they used to have um, buffets or something there. And the minister, he said, uh, took a plate and got right to the front of the queue and piled it up with food, he said. Uh, and, and this was live on the man in line about a minister in the island band government. So no wonder they wouldn't speak to each no, other after that. But Arnie never came back to us on that, I don't no, think. He never no. referred to it. And, of course, the government ended up paying for the marina themselves. I yeah, mean, Albert yeah. would have built it when he was doing Clinch's brewery development. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Dear Albert, how we miss him. Political coverage was a key element of mandate, and David and I sat through countless sittings of Tinwald and the Keys, and we heard many extraordinary things, as we recalled when we were talking to Christy. So many things. I mean, I, I remember uh, Matty Ward. Do you remember him in oh, Tinwald yes. one day? Uh, he was doing a vote. Uh, they didn't have the electronic board. It was Mr Ward, and he, he said, yay or nay, I can't remember what it was. And he said to the governor, he said, you have to excuse me, Your Excellency, I've got my wife's teeth in today. <laughs> <laughs> and he probably oh, did have, actually. He was such a nice old chap. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you had, uh, I mean, Peter Cairn was a classic coming out with some of these things. He used to say the white elephants have come home to roost. He, he said, I've had more Passovers than the chief rabbi. <laughs> and he, he said at one time, he said, I'm not a politician, I'm an MHK. <laughs> and and uh, as a result of this, um, because we used to pass notes to we Quinton did. Gill and various people yeah. uh, of things we'd heard, mm. uh, and and he started working on that. And he and... and June Watson. June, the uh, yeah. present speaker, yeah. uh, produced these books called... Um, Tinwall balls. Tinwall balls. Tinwall balls. Oh yes, You've yeah, seen yeah those, I've seen those. With all yeah. the, the mis- uh, uh, but there was so there was so much of that because Dominic Delaney mixed metaphors. Here's one of his: If you cherry pick like this, the curate's egg is going to get into deep water. <laughs> <laughs> he said one day a brilliant phrase. He said, "Members are in danger of becoming entrenched in their own dogma." <laughs> oh, my word. That's a brilliant phrase. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, this, this was one of the joys of being in Tinwald. Because, yes. 
Uh, you had to have something to amuse you, didn't you? You certainly did need amusement. But whatever was happening in Tinwald, at about twenty to twelve, David would pack up and leave to be back at the station for his daily appointment with the Manx public and the Man in Line, or the Moan in Line, as it was affectionately called. David was the director of a small cast of regular contributors, Arthur, Nina Quiggin, Marge Jockin and Dorothy from Peel. Yes, they were known as the Manx Radio Telephone Repertory Company, and they were on every day. David said he must be getting things right as chairman because he was criticised by them for defending the government and criticised by the government for letting them on. And it was a brave, if not foolish, man who dared to submit to a tongue-lashing from Dorothy. Here is someone from the steam packet company trying to defend its decision not to support a campsite for TT visitors in Peel. Oh dear. OK, we actually have a caller on the line now and it's Dorothy. Hello, Dorothy. Good morning. Now, I don't know which of these fine, brainy gentlemen are responsible, but I'll resident of... Say a few years in Peel, I was horrified when I read in the paper that our local uh, commissioners had turned down this tended village which was to go up on the headlands. Now, surely this was looked into as regards drains and all before the steam packet made this offer. Or was it the fact that you give it to Peel because nobody else wanted it? Oh... David Dixon. No, Richard, is it? Yes. Looks like it, yeah. We were offered the opportunity to look at the Peel site. Dave Morgan, who runs the Tented Village uh, in Nobles Park, went out to have a look. Sadly, being up on the headland, it's an extremely windy site. And it's always been windy. <laughs> well, that makes it very difficult for obviously people living in tents. Obviously, you don't know anything about Peel for a start. <laughs> or was it, as I said before, because it was Peel and nobody could be bothered? Well, wait a minute now. Let's just clear it. <laughs> are you going to actually look for somewhere else now, or have you given up on that one? Dave, Dave is still actively looking because there's a tremendous number of people who want to come to the TT who at the moment are not able to do so. And you could ship them if we you... We can ship them, yeah. They can be shipped. Dorothy, thank you. Oh, don't bother. Right. <laughs> thank you, Dorothy. Phone-ins were one of David's specialities. Always courteous and fair and extremely well-informed, David made people feel that what they had to say was important and worth listening to, even if often it was barely credible. A detailed discussion on warts and verrucas might have defeated a lesser man, but David was able to keep an increasingly unlikely discussion going with aplomb. His guest on this phone-in was, well, I let him introduce her. Well, the time is just coming up to 11 o'clock. This is Manx Radio broadcasting on 219 metres in the medium wave band 89 and 96 megahertz VHF from the Isle of Man. It's time now for the family phone-in. And I would have a piece of music behind me if my cartridge had queued up, which it hasn't. But I'll say very good morning to you if you've just joined us. The family phone-in topic for this morning, <coughs> pardon me, is old-fashioned health remedies. We don't want you talking about what you buy at the chemist this morning. Oh, we can get the music now. Let's have that. We always feel more comfortable and secure with a theme. We don't want you talking about the uh, over-the-counter chemist prescriptions today. We want you to tell us about the things that your mums and dads and grandmas and granddads did to keep you well. And with me in the studio to talk about them, and indeed to start the programme off, I'm very, very pleased to welcome back again to Manx Radio 
Miss Mona Douglas, who is an eminent writer. She also collects information on the Isle of Man. She's a musicologist here, and she's back on the show this morning. Good morning to you, Mona. Good morning. Well, now, you've done a little bit of research into uh, some of these old cures, and I think I stopped you in your tracks this morning when I said there was a fellow who put a cork in his bed to cure cramp. You'd never heard of that one, No, you? I haven't. <laughs> I've heard of putting a nutmeg in your pocket to cure rheumatism. Yes, that's Which is one, more or less the same type of thing. I wonder if anybody knows how on earth these things work, because I can't see any connection between rheumatism and a nutmeg whatsoever, can you? Well, nutmeg is, as we all know, a spice, and it has certain uh, effluvia, <laughs> and uh, it might be something to do with that, I don't know. Right, well now, if you have any idea <clears throat> why a nutmeg in the pocket can cure rheumatism, or a cork in the bed will settle cramp, would you give us a ring, please, on Douglas 24144? Well, sadly, I have no idea. So let's go on to warts. The family phone-in is underway, and with us now is Len. Hello, good morning. Good morning. Uh, talking about the charms, like, you know, uh, and Warner <laughs> Douglas was saying that they were dying out, or you were asking them to see, do they think they were dying out? Well, I'm one of your young fellow, but I can manage to charm warts. Ah, now, right, let's get on to charming warts. You know a bit about this, Mona, do you, charming warts? Well, yes, it's uh, quite a well-known thing, of course. Were, Nan Wade, I believe, was particularly good at it, but there were lots of other people that could do it too. And uh, curiously enough, some of the English people have come into contact with this, the people that have come over. And uh, I had happened to have at my house yesterday when I was talking about some of these cures an Englishman who has only been in the island about a year. And uh, he had tried some advertised cures for warts, chemical things, and they hadn't had any effect. And there was a child there who said to him, I know a cure for warts. If you tie a human hair around the wart and say the right words, it'll go. So he let the child try it, and sure enough, the walk went. Well, is this any part of your uh, charming of warts, tying human hairs round, Len? No, I use a potato. A potato? How, tell oh, us yes, how you I did. Oh, yes, I heard of that. Mm. Tell but, us how you did. Can you tell us? Well, you're not supposed to. Or oh, you're not. Uh, I, I see. Oh, if, if it's a, a medical secret, we don't. <laughs> 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 yes, it's a medical secret, yeah. Oh, dear, I'm afraid we'll never know the secrets of charming warts away with a potato. David pressed on. Do you cure anything else other than warts? No, just warts. You're the wart man, right. Um, uh, are warts still as prevalent today as they used to be in the 30s and 40s? Oh, I would say so. Mind you, while you're on the subject, like you see warts and verrucas on the feet mm. are very much the same. Are they? Yeah. Can you a, charm verrucas? A veruca inside it grows in instead of growing out. Ah, can you charm verrucas out of yeah. the feet? Yeah. What, the same way as what? Same way as what? Really? Did you know that, Mona? That's something new, isn't it? Well, that's something more recent, I think. <clears throat> yes. Do you get emergency calls out for warts at all, then? You know? Not emergency <laughs> calls, but <laughs> Not the, worst, often. the worst case I had was a chap who was, he'd been going to hospital and getting them cut, yeah. cut out, like, you know, and they kept coming back on him. Mm. And uh, he came to me in desperation, like, and uh, he was covered in warts. I've never seen the like. Really? No. Mm. And uh, I managed to cure him. Well, thank goodness for that. You see, whether David was interviewing the chief minister or a wart charmer, he was equally interested in the people and what they did and bringing it to the listener. 
David had a number of regular contributors to his programmes. There was Doug Farragher, an expert in Manx Gaelic, and David persuaded him to do a series called The Manx Have a Word for It. There was John Quilliam from Colby, whom David regularly interviewed on all things Manx. And there was Mike Goldie. Mike had a column in the local paper about Thaltons, and he was a gardener, amongst other things. Here's David, with Mike, out on an expedition, exploring a strange tunnel by the roadside near Belig Bridge on the TT course. Actually, it's a tunnel. I think it must be about 100 yards long, and it leads into a quarry. It's rather interesting. I mean, there's nothing sort of supernatural anything about it. We're not going in there, are we? Oh, yes, we are. You've got your green wellies on, and I have got my green wellies on. Oh, we have permission. We've got to go. After you. Right, well, I'll follow you through the swamplands here. There's a gorse at the entrance. It's not too bad. You can't see anything in here. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. Are you down on your hands and knees? Oh, I see it now, yes. We might be talking here. Oh, my God. Good acoustics, though, David. Yes, we could probably go fishing as well in this lot. There's not many people going to walk through here, aren't there? It's rather strange that it is so low, isn't it, really? It's very, very eerie, yes. It's hardly enough height for a whole hotel, isn't it? No. When it gets lower, as we get to the end... Does it? Am I going to bang my head here? Uh, Not just yet. When I bang my head, it's going to hear the water. When I hear the scream, that's up yet. I think we've got to be in a crouched position. Oh, I'm I'm crouching Uh, as far as my old body will let me in. We're getting lower and lower yet now. Well now this is the worst thing I've been involved with. I've been in some places with Goldie. I cannot believe that I've come up through this amazing place. Well, we used to have small carts in those days. Ah. I don't think it was What? The intrepid David underground with Mike Goldie. Another of David's regular contributors to his shows was architectural historian Peter Kelly. They did a series called Kelly's Eye, where they'd stand in front of a building and Peter would tantalise the listener with bits of detail to see if they could guess where it was. Peter, what's Kelly's eye looking at today? Today, David, I'm looking at a building which I suppose the um, estate agent's brochure would say lovely coastal position, excellent views, balcony, um, feature tower, um, secluded spot, no neighbours, and um, eventually they say it's Douglas Head Lighthouse. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, you can't actually stay can you actually stay or live in the lighthouse or just in the buildings that surround it the buildings that surround it which of course were the lighthouse keepers um, accommodation yes um, were sold off probably 1986-87 the, the light was automated as all lighthouses are now mm. so they don't need uh, lighthouse keepers anymore to trim wicks and to do whatever it's all astonishingly David and Peter did a thousand episodes of this program over 20 years the breadth of David's broadcasting interest was remarkable. After I left Manx Radio in 1989, David carried on presenting Mandate by himself five days a week. He also did The Man in Line five days a week, 
and The Country Show and phone-ins, commentaries at events like Tinwell Day, special features with his regular contributors. And he would interview anyone from children to senior citizens and everyone in between. In fact, one of the most valuable series he did was called Time to Remember, for which he interviewed dozens of elderly folk about their varied lives in all walks of life. He seemed to have an empathy with them, and of course they trusted him, having known his voice for many years. These interviews now form one of the most valuable archives that the island has, and, thankfully, it's all available to listen to on the Culture Vanin website. One of the most enjoyable interviews was that with Alfie Gilmore, who was well into his 80s when David spoke to him. Alfie had the most amazing stories about Douglas in the early years of the last century. He had a wonderful sense of humour, and he and David got on like a house on fire. It's the stories about the parrots around Douglas that are the highlight for me, and it's really worth searching the interview out on the Culture Vannon website. Here's a taster. Let me ask you about... uh work i mean was it all work and no play did you have any fun in those days oh yes i i must tell you the story when i was in Todlands as an apprentice and those days of course as an apprentice you just said yes sir no sir three bags full mm. you, you had to be obedient and pay attention to what was going on and a uh, big jimmy taggart and i one day we went to a house tremissary lodge at the bottom of blackberry lane to do something or other in the kitchen probably a burst water pipe and the lady answered the door, of course, very nice person. And she said, oh, come in. She said, I'm glad to see you, this, that, and the other. And she said, uh, this is a parrot. He said, and we'd like to sit this parrot in the sun, on this table because a nice sunshine coming through the window. And by the way, gentlemen, she said, this parrot doesn't have anything to do with swear words. This is, no, this is a house where there's no swearing. Mm-hmm. We're good living types here, or words of that effect. Oh, well, that's all right, said Big Jimmy. As far as we're concerned, there'd be no swearing from us. And and she looked at me, and I, I just nodded my head in agreement. You see, see? So after a while, Jimmy Taggart had been down to the parrot at the cage, saying something to him. I didn't know what on earth he was saying to it. Well, after an hour or so, I suppose the lady come in to see that we want a cup of tea or that, which was a good thing those days if you got a cup of tea on the job. And... Uh, when she come in, she, uh, she says to Jimmy Taggart, how have you gone on? And the parrot immediately says, you're a stupid bugger. <laughs> <laughs> and the lady in the house whipped round and looked at the parrot straight away and she said, what did you say? And the parrot said, you're a stupid bugger. <laughs> well, of course, I was nearly fainting myself because I never, I never even looked at the parrot. <laughs> I know now that it was Jimmy Taggart that... He was That's what he'd been saying. He'd been saying to the parrot, I'm quiet, you're a stupid bug, and this, that, and the other. Well, you'd both be in trouble with you. Oh, I'm right, yes. She said, I've good mind. She said, oh, dear, oh, the house. Oh, no, he says, you can't do that. He says, <clears throat> big Jimmy Taggart says, I'm awfully sorry. It must have been the young fella. I'll, ch- <laughs> I'll chastise him when we go off the job. Well, I was shivering. He's blaming you. He's blaming me. It must have been the young fella, he says. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say boo to a goose, never mind the blue and parrots. <laughs> They were obviously enjoying themselves. In all the years I worked with David, he was unusual, certainly at Manx Radio, in that his mood was the same every day. Always cheerful, always enthusiastic, never moody like the rest of us. 
always willing to take on any challenge presented to him, and never happier than when behind the microphone talking to his public. Blessed with the perfect radio voice, distinctive, warm, and with a smile in it, for over 50 years he was the voice of Manx Radio. He had a happy family life with his wife Anne and their children. He loved cricket, music and theatre, holidays and enjoyed a wide circle of friends. In later life, he decided to change sides. He moved from the press bench in Tinwald to become a member of Tinwald itself and was elected as an MLC. Work he threw himself into with the same commitment and enthusiasm as his broadcasting. But at heart, he was a radio man. It's not work to me, you see. It's, mm. it's yeah. always been a great pleasure to do all this and, and a privilege to be able to do it. I suppose having done the country show for, for uh, 40 years and plus, uh, I'd have to say that's got to be high, but um, the, it, 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 there's not anything that I wouldn't like to do again. Mm. He's now in the Manx Radio Hall of Fame, but his voice will never be forgotten. So much of his work is in our archives, and whilst there's a Manx radio, there will be David Collister. So let's leave David at his happiest, taking his loyal listenership through the old favourites and the new releases of the world of country and western. Dirk Bentley and a song simply called Home and I'm heading for home now because uh, here we've uh, reached the end of another country show and uh, today it was largely uh, I suppose for our featured album and appraisal of the work of Mac Wiseman but now Tom T. Hall's going to see me home with a song in a seashell. song in a seashell down by the ocean one day beautiful song in a seashell played by the wind in the waves it's a song about happiness it's a song about and that tribute to david collister was produced and presented by charles guard ocean.